You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Good morning. We'll start by dismissing the kids. So if your kids are in children's church or Sunday school or nursery. Well, we are now on sermon 15 of 16 in our Life Under the Sun sermon series. We're on chapter 11 of 12 of this great book and about to close the book. On Ecclesiastes, and I trust that if you've had the opportunity to be consistently tracking with this series, that you've come to understand the deep, rich, and highly relevant truths that are nested with this ancient, within this ancient book. And also that you've come to love and appreciate this section of God's living and active word. Speaking of which, please have your Bibles open in front of you. What you need to hear today will not be from me. I'm a broken man working through the exact things I'm preaching about. I get emotional when I get near the cross, and I'm up here mostly willing as a servant, relying on God. And what you need to hear today will be from God's Word through the power of His Holy Spirit. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, please take that one home with you. It's our gift to you. If you're looking for Ecclesiastes, it's right in the middle of your, close to the middle of your Bible. Um, but it's a short book, so you, you open your Bible and you don't end there. You're going to end up probably on Psalms, and you can flip over to Proverbs and then to Ecclesiastes. We'll be reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 11 in just a moment. But first I'd like to tell you about Howard Temin. The great Canadian storyteller Malcolm Gladwell on his podcast tells the story of the Obscure Virus Club. It was a group of three scientists working in the area of cancer research in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. They were carrying on a work that began in the early 1900s where scientists had identified tumors in chickens that appeared to be contagious. The group was focused on an obscure area of medical research in the field of oncology centered around the hypothesis that viruses could alter DNA. To say they had little support from the scientific community would be an understatement. Not only was there no support for their work, it was outright rejection and ridicule. Dear Bob, I regret that your paper on the T-cell retrovirus is not acceptable for publication in the Journal of Virology. There is little point in perpetuating this controversy of the presumed viral nature of this material. I have no alternative but to reject this manuscript outright. They got that a lot. You see, the scientific community of the day subscribed to a dogma about how information flowed within the cell, from DNA to RNA to proteins, and never in the opposite direction, as the Obscure Virus Club was proposing. The position was entrenched, memorialized, and actually given the official name, the Central Dogma. But the rejections didn't stop the Obscure Virus Club. They risked their reputations and their careers in pursuit of what they believed was an important discovery. They did experiments out of the trunks of their cars. They worked in basement offices and in wastewater transfer rooms. The ringleader of this group was a Jewish scientist named Howard Temin from Philadelphia. Born in 1934, Howard was the type to risk and share whatever he had for what he believed was right. He donated his bar mitzvah money to a refugee camp for seniors, and he smuggled Hebrew prayer books 
into the Soviet Union. He was respected as a brilliant thinker with the ability to pursue any field of study as he wanted, yet he chose to focus on the chicken tumor virus. And it's a good thing he did. In 1969, Howard Temin and his colleague located a strange little enzyme in a distant corner of the genetic code. And this enzyme had the ability to interpret RNA and translate it into DNA, enabling the virus to insert its own genetic information into the cells it infected. They called it reverse transcriptase. It would go on to become what most would classify as one of the most important discoveries of the modern era, era of medicine. It turns out that reverse transcriptase is the central enzyme in several widespread viral diseases, such as AIDS and hepatitis B. And maybe even more importantly, it became a key component of several important techniques in molecular biology, including reverse transcription polymerase chain reaction, one of the most widely used laboratory methods for detecting the presence of viruses. <clears throat> you know what by its colloquial name, a PCR test. Six years later, in 1975, Howard Temin and his colleague David Baltimore were awarded the Nobel Prize, and true to form, Howard Temin trades in his two first-class tickets to Sweden for coach so he can take his wife and his daughters. And receiving his award in an ill-fitting suit in a room packed with chain-smoking Swedish royalty and a collection of the world elite, Howard thanks them for the honor, and then without missing a beat, risking his moment in the limelight, risking the long-overdue accolades for his diligent work, Standing exactly on his principles, he chastises the crowd. Here we are being rewarded for our work in understanding cancer, and you're all smoking. <laughs> we are absolutely drawn to the stories of courageous individuals who, with a singular focus, risk everything they have for an ultimate reward. Whatever books, or movies, or fairy tales, or legends, we are infatuated with the personal dimension of risk and reward. In fact, I think our pursuit of this plotline in the lives of those who are distant and beyond us, we forget that each one of us here today is living the same plotline. We have the ability to risk everything we've been given to put everything on the line for a reward that is so great, it makes a life-saving medical discovery look like a soiled band-aid. And so let's turn to the words of Ecclesiastes 11. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what dis disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves in the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman or with a child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember the days of the darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. I will endeavor to demonstrate that the author is making three key points in this passage. Number one, that we need to risk everything that we have for the kingdom. 
Number two, that in doing so, we will be rewarded with supernatural joy that can only come from God. And number three, that this can only ultimately be achieved through Christ's work on the cross. Let's commit our time to the Lord in prayer. God, we ask that you reveal your truth to us today as we dig into the rich and deep book of Ecclesiastes. Show us deep in our hearts what you're asking us to risk for your kingdom and give us your confidence that we will experience ultimate joy. We pray this in your name. Amen. Venture everything. The first half of this chapter is clear and pointed. We all have resources and abilities that we have been granted by God, and we need to use them, invest them, and risk them. Holding on to them for our own reasons is absolutely wrong. And the point fits so well with the broader theme in Ecclesiastes of hevel. The word hevel is translated most commonly as vanity or meaningless. The famous first verse of Ecclesiastes or intro verse in Ecclesiastes, meaningless, 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 or vanity, vanity, vanity. The word hevel does not mean something has no meaning or that something is necessarily vain. It means mist or vapor. The translators are trying to communicate this concept of something you can't grasp or hold on to because it's gone as soon as it arrives. Ecclesiastes 11.10 says that for youth and the dawn of life are vanity or havel. In terms of youth and vigor, it's not that they're meaningless. In fact, we will unpack today that there is plenty to experience and enjoy in this life. But be that as it may, we still cannot hang on to life and youth because it's over in a moment. God has granted each one of us life, some amount of health, abilities in varying degrees, and time here on planet Earth. And to hang on to these things is the same as grasping at the mist or a vapor. We can't. Instead, we need to be ready to risk and venture these things for the kingdom. Verse 1 calls us to venture in faith. <clears throat> Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Let's start with some context here. First of all, my basis for expositing Ecclesiastes is that the author, who calls himself Koholet, is King Solomon, who ruled Israel for 40 years from around 970 to 930 BC. Solomon is the wisest man who ever lives. He rules Israel from Jerusalem during its golden age, and his wealth and influence are legendary. 1 Kings 10, 22-23 gives us a window into King Solomon's life. For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with a fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. The NLT translates that 23rd verse as, So King Solomon became richer and wiser than any other king on earth. Verse 23. This principle of putting to use his resources by sending out ships full of men and goods and food to have them return years later with a bounty of profit can be seen clearly in verse 1 of Ecclesiastes 11. In the first word, cast, we see clearly the elements of trust and adventure, setting out into the unknown of the open sea. In a world before maps and GPS, there was little certainty about what lay beyond the horizon. The term your bread speaks to the goods of one's livelihood. It is one's paramount resource that is being risked. And the reward requires patience. The reward will come but only after an extended period of time has elapsed, after many days. And verse 2 calls us to give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. The point here is that we should also diversify. 
what a ruined word diversity is in our modern post or postmodern age. My use here has nothing to do with the self-contradicting psychobabble around social justice and equality, and everything to do with enlarging or varying a range of possibilities or outcomes. Think diversification in the context of investment. Our investments are to be widespread and as widespread as our prosperity allows. In Hebrew, the numerical sequence of seven or even eight is almost certainly meant to infer a progression, an unlimited or indefinite numerical value. It's intended to communicate the enthusiasm and vigor of our venture, our investment intentions. And the motivation for this enthusiasm is clearly stated in the second half of this verse. 11 2b says, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. We don't have the knowledge nor the understanding of what is going to unfold in this life, and so our focus should be on putting every resource at our disposal to work at the earliest opportunity possible. And in spite of the fact that we don't know what is going to happen, the author takes a specific turn in his words to remind us that number three, God has created order. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves in the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. I submit to you that the point here is very simple. God is in control and we are not. The world and everything in it, physical or otherwise, has an order ordained by God and it will happen exactly as it's been designed to happen. Within the gospel, this is the part that reads, God is sovereign and we are not. When the clouds are full of condensed moisture, they release that moisture as rain. And when gravity pulls a dying tree down to meet the ground, there it will reside. Such simple cause and effect relations and chain reactions based on the fundamental principles of the laws of physics. But upon a deeper, closer investigation, these claims scream the question, why? Why does the universe operate in an orderly, law-driven, quantifiable, mathematically balanced, logical and rational fashion? because God has ordained the order. Verses four and five go on to explain that even though God has created order, number four, we don't fully understand that order. In spite of an order and design that screams at us from every corner of nature, we don't fully understand it. We don't always quite get it. In verses one and two, Koholet implores us to risk what we've been given for the kingdom and to diversify our efforts. And here he warns us that we'll be drawn to our own interpretation tempted to use our own wisdom. Verse 4 says, He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. The clearest application here for us is a charge against procrastination that results from us spinning our wheels, thinking we know more than we do. Caught up on our own wisdom about what we think we know about the world around us, but don't actually know, will be detrimental to our ability to reap the benefits that God has for us. We also call this paralysis by analysis so consumed with understanding every angle and eventuality in order to aid our decision-making that we fail to make any decision at all. God has established an order in this world that we can't quite grasp, and if we're relying on our abilities alone, we'll miss most of what God has for us. And verse 5 is a further affront to those who hold an anti-God worldview. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. The NLT provides a helpful translation of this verse. Just as you cannot understand the path of the wind or the mystery of a tiny baby growing in its mother's womb, so you cannot understand the activity of God who does all things. 
Many famous literary works down through the ages have proposed litmus test assumptions on which their work is based. More often than not, these turn up empty upon closer inspection and or furtherance of knowledge and understanding. Charles Darwin, in his famous Origin of Species, posits a simple cell and a complete fossil record as foundational assumptions for his theory of evolution, both of which would be proven factually incorrect in the decades and century that followed. And so it's infinitely fascinating to consider the timeless claim made by the author of Ecclesiastes almost 3,000 years before Darwin. Just as you cannot understand the mystery of a tiny baby growing in its mother's womb, It turns out that blob of a cell that Darwin assumed was simple is actually an infinitely complex structure of machinery, information, engineering, and design that exceeds our own understanding. If you've never seen it visualized with CGI, here it is. This is taking place about two trillion times in order to form a baby in its mother's womb. But we don't actually know what makes these microscopic machines do what they do, or how they know what to do. And scientists certainly don't know how the information got into the cell in the first place, unless they read their Bible, that is. And push for an answer, some of the most brilliant minds on the cutting edge of human understanding about these processes have one response. You can't help but see the divinity. Millennia later, with piles of advanced technology and terabytes of research data, we're at the exact same place as Kohelet, not able to understand the mystery of a tiny baby growing in its mother's womb. Psalm 139 says, For you formed my inward parts, and you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows them very well. I really struggle when people say <clears throat> that this isn't a scientific book. The author's point in Ecclesiastes 11.5 remains as valid today as it was then. God is clearly in control and demonstrates that with his created order. And we just don't fully understand how his order works. And in many cases, we don't understand at all how it works. And so given that we have resources and gifts and abilities at our disposal, and given that God has created order that we don't understand, the author in Ecclesiastes concludes his thoughts with a call to work diligently and faithfully. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand. This is Ecclesiastes 11.6. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Going back to a farming and agricultural themed illustration, the writer implores us to work diligently. From morning to evening is a Hebrew idiom of completeness. Don't stop. Finish well. Complete your task. Run your race. Do it completely. Do it diligently. And why? Because you and I don't. We can't possibly know how everything works together for God's glory. Our task is not easy, but it is straightforward. Remain obedient to God's word using what we have, our minds, our bodies, our resources, in a variety of ways, means, and places for maximum impact for God's kingdom. The author Michael Eaton puts it, the believer finds a motivation in knowing that life is supervised by God even though detailed prior knowledge of God's plan is not available. Jesus in the New Testament unpacks this concept with, a, with vivid clarity in a number of parables. Turn with me to Matthew 25, 14-30. 
This is the parable of the ten talents. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents here. I have made five talents more. His master told him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents here. I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the utter darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Most of us can recall the first half of the parable, but it's often the second half of the parable that comes as, quite a, as a bit of a shocker each time we read it. It's important to recognize that in this parable, the judgment is not directed to the individual's lack of a bank account balance, but rather the lack of a desire to risk the balance he has, be it great or small. Verse 29b reads, For to everyone who has, who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This can also be tra translated as, To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. The parable of the shrewd manager provides an even starker picture in an attempt to make a similar point. Turn with me to Luke 16, starting in verse 1. He also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a, man, a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commanded the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. 
For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. The parable is not endorsing dishonest management. Instead, it uses the predicament of the dishonest manager to illustrate a simple concept. Use what's not yours, but is at your disposal for maximum return for the kingdom and for your eternal reward. What's not yours? Everything you think you own is not yours. It's granted to you, but by the grace of God. God could remove it from you or you from it at any moment. And therefore, it's not yours. Grasp it too tightly and it will slip through your fingers. Invest and spend it willingly and diligently in as many places as possible and you'll experience the greatest joy you could ever know. Koholet, having made his point about the need to venture and risk what we have in the context of God's broader kingdom plan, now moves in verses 7 to 9 to describe what we gain, and that is joy. He begins by stating the simple fact that there is joy in this life. In Ecclesiastes 11, verse 7. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. In spite of the fact that we can't grasp or hold on to this life, in spite of the fact that our life on earth is so very temporary, a blip on this timeline of eternity, the author in Ecclesiastes writes and affirms that there is joy in this life. The word light in this context is used to point to the goodness of life in contrast to darkness, adversity, and death. And we see this throughout the Old Testament. Genesis 1, verses 3 to 4. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Psalm 97, 11, Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. And the contrast between light and life and darkness and death can be seen in Job 18, verses 5 to 6. Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp above him is put out. With that background, we should be able to see that this is a clear and straightforward statement about the fact that there can be joy in life. The author uses two words here to describe the fact of joy, sweet and good or pleasant. Good to make a general statement about the goodness of life, and sweet to make a specific point about the need to savor life, much as one would savor a sweet honey. And after staking the claim that there is joy in life, the author lays out two fundamentals for our view on joy. <clears throat> Ecclesiastes 11.8 So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many, all that comes is vanity. The first fundamental is that life cannot be enjoyed in retrospect. On this side of eternity, we're called to live a life of faith. Parts of that call have just been described in the first half of this chapter. And a response to the call to live a life of faith is an urgent matter. We cannot live a life of faith in our memories. We live a, fa- a life of faith in the here and the now. And when that's gone, it's gone. So life cannot be enjoyed in, it cannot be enjoyed in retrospect. And secondly, passiveness cannot lead to joy. The second half of verse eight. eight. All that comes is vanity. 
The reference to Hevel again here directs our thoughts back to the fickle, floundering, and unreliable nature of life on earth. Life does not yield up its joys easily. We've just covered much of this ground in the first five verses. Life involves delay, verse 1, uncertainty, verse 2, perplexity and difficulty, verse 3, and ignorance and disappointment, verse 5. Joy requires us to engage, to make a decision, and to have a response. And so now, understanding the fundamentals of joy, we have a call to find joy in verse 9. The first part of verse 9 says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. A call to find joy has two key dimensions, one for our inner life and one for our outer life. With respect to our inner life, the author uses the word heart, which means our inner self, our soul, who we are, as differentiated from the outward shell of a temporary body that we have. The author is clearly saying that the source and means by which we will find joy needs to come from our heart. Joy starts with a heart conviction, a heart change, a heart transformation. And the second dimension is our outer life. The author's use of the words walk and sight in the second sentence implies our outward bearing. Joy needs to come from our heart, but it needs to affect how we present ourselves and how we comport ourselves to the world around us. It should be evident to those that we spend time with. And so our joy needs to affect our inner life, which will in turn affect our outer life. And now in the latter part of verse 9 and verse 10, we get an ultimate conclusion to the thoughts in chapter 11. We're called to venture everything, to gain joy, and now reminded of the context for everything we've been discussing and the fact that it is only accomplished through the cross. 9b through to 11 says, But now... But know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life are many. The author, makes a, the author uses a definite article, the judgment. So it's clear that the, he's, what he's referring to, this is not talking about some general judicial activity or the raw concept of power and authority wielded by just any king. It's talking about a specific judgment event. The Hebrew word used here is mishpat. It implies justice, that things are made right, and that wrongs are punished. The judge is much more than just a ruler with political power. The judge in this case is discriminating and discerning, deciding between right and wrong. But the background to the word also lies in kingship, and it implies sovereignty and power. And finally, the word calls for something dynamic. This is not the blindfolded maiden holding up scales. This is a supreme, sovereign king with the ability to judge fairly and perfectly, but who is also active in bringing about what is right. That's the rich use of the word judgment by the author in Ecclesiastes. And this points us to Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. And then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so an author writing thousands of years before the event itself points us to the cross. 
judgment against the standard, but with a ruler and judge who is actively engaged in bringing about what is right. Verse 10 points out two main problems which plague us here in our life under heaven and create barriers to a life of joy. But its place here next to verse 9b makes sense as we recognize that the only solution to both these problems is accomplished with Christ's death on the cross. The first barrier is vexation, which is the condition of the inner life and is solved through salvation. Verse 10 says, remove vexation from your heart. The Hebrew word used here is kahas. It refers to that which angers, grieves, or irritates. It's also used elsewhere in the Old Testament to refer to the sin of man, sin which vexes God. And it is used elsewhere within the book of Ecclesiastes to encompass the perplexity and grief of the experience of life. It's plain and straightforward to see that the only way to remove vexation from our hearts is not from within, but from without through God and through the sacrifice of His Son on the cross. And it's our salvation in Jesus Christ that brings salvation and restoration for our inner life. And the second barrier to joy is the one that affects our physical bodies. Ecclesiastes 11, the second half of verse 10, says, And put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. And the Hebrew word used here is bashar, and it speaks of our flesh body and of our moral, mortal frailty. There is a case to be made that the author is describing removing physical discomfort from our lives where possible, but I'm not going to make that case. What I can say with confidence is that in spite of the realities of life under heaven, Christ's death on the cross, cross brings victory over death, the problem of our outer life. The ultimate restoration for the physical pain we see and we experience and we fear. Looking back through chapter 11, we can see that we are clearly called to take an active role in venturing and risking for the kingdom. Our reward is rich, true joy that not only allows us to enjoy the life God's given us, but shapes and molds us while we're in the midst of it. And finally, there's a reminder that we need God to rescue us in order to achieve any of it. As we look forward to taking communion today, let's take a moment to ground ourselves in an appropriate context for the elements relative to our passage of Scripture. A pivotal moment in God accomplishing His work on the day of the cross involved a little baby some 33 years earlier. And that baby was woven together in its mother's womb, in his mother's womb. This child is of such importance that his life would set the world on fire and transform this planet like no other event in human history. And this baby didn't have a biological father, only a biological mother. And if you'll allow me a personal reflection, I personally marvel at the thought that as that baby is formed in Mary's womb, in keeping with his own awesome and beautiful design for the conception of life, God weaves in a strand of his divine DNA along with Mary's such that every cell in Jesus' body contained both human and divine DNA. It helps me to just catch a glimpse of understanding how Jesus could be fully man and fully God. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And Jesus Christ, the word that became flesh and dwelt among us, 
has a critical and pivotal moment in his early ministry that provides powerful context for his death on the cross. Matthew 4 and Luke 4 detail Satan's temptation of Jesus in the desert. Jesus has been 40 days and nights in the desert without food. Satan first tempts Jesus with food, then with testing God's provision, and Jesus rejects both. Finally, Satan tempts Jesus with the promise of reclaiming his creation and all the nations of the world. Matthew 4, verse 8. Turn them with me. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Whether or not Satan had the power to even deliver on his promise is really beside the point. But Jesus' mission was to reclaim his creation, and here was Satan providing a risk-free, pain-free, sacrifice-free path to accomplishing that mission, and Jesus rejects it. God has asked Jesus to sacrifice his life. The word venture seems to me an inadequate way to describe what Jesus was asked to do by his Father. But it's hard not to see that dynamic of risk as Jesus struggles in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood, begging his Father to take the cup from him. But his Father doesn't. Jesus goes to the cross. And as he hangs there on the cross, embodying all the evil and filth and sin of the entire human race, more than a venture, more than a risk, he's given up everything in obedience to his Father. And less than three days later, a joy like never before, that would eclipse every conceivable use of that word, pierces through the dark, with the mighty power of a sovereign king who is highly active in bringing justice and restoration to his creation. And as Josh comes to lead us in song as we prepare to take communion, I'd like to remind you that this table is not the table of Redemption Church. This is the Lord's table. We do this in obedience to him to commemorate Christ's death and resurrection. And if you're not a believer, if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, then please let the elements pass you by. This is not for you. Instead, use this time to search your heart and hear God's call in your life. He formed you in your mother's womb, and he paid the penalty for your sin, and he desperately wants to be in an intimate, personal relationship with you. And if you are a believer, please take time to consider God's call in your life. We each have something that we've been given or blessed with, and God wants us to risk it for him, for his kingdom. Maybe it's time. Maybe it's money. Those are the easy ones. But they're still pretty hard. Maybe it's letting go of something, giving something up, taking something on, moving outside your comfort zone, reordering your priorities, changing your priorities, getting some new priorities, releasing that burden that you've been holding on to, taking that step of faith that you've been avoiding. And God is promising you a joy like you've never known, a joy that's been secured by his work on the cross. And all you have to do, and all we have to do, is accept it.